Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 229, The Reign of Queen Anne Boleyn. Just to remind you, we are in the midst of the Scandal of Christendom series, a chance for you all to hear about the woman who's divided opinion for the last 500 years and to give your views in an SSS, otherwise known as Super Scientific Survey, that will rock the world historical and generally have a good time. Today we're going to hear about the reign of Queen Anne, that is to say the years between 1533 and her fall in 1536. Hope that's not a plot spoiler for anybody. Then on Wednesday you'll get a second episode in the same week. Ah, not only that, but it's from a historian and author, Natalie Gruninger. Whoop, and indeed whoop. She's published in the footsteps of Anne Boleyn, in the footsteps of the Six Wives of Henry VIII, and now Discovering Tudor London, amongst other stuff. She's got a fab website with loads of information, and I advise you to spend some time at onthetudortrail.com. Natalie is going to talk about the Royal Summer Progress, a consistent part of Henry and his court life. But the rest of the Scandal of Christendom programme, hop along to thehistoryofengland.co.uk. Just remember, we'll also have Claire Ridgway creator of the fantastic Anne Boleyn Files, and voting opens 29th of October. Do not miss it or be square. That's the right expression. Don't forget that for members, you have Steve Cloutier on Thomas Wyatt, me on Anne's reputation through the ages, and on the 25th of October, we'll have our very own members vote on why Anne was executed with a prize draw for an original silver Elizabeth I half-groat, courtesy of Hall's Hammered Coins. Now then, we left off last week with the bombshell that Henry and Anne finally had sex. Well, good golly, Miss Molly, and after all that waiting, all those years, 
They dawdled on their way back from the continent, so we might guess they had sex more than once. But for this, there is no historical evidence, just schoolboy giggling on my part. You might ask then, why now? Why did they do this now? The normal theory is that with the French alliance in the bag, Henry felt super confident he would get what he wanted from the Pope with French help. I have to say this sounds really, really dicey after all these years. Another theory is that it was the death of the Archbishop of Canterbury, William Warham. Warham had begun to show signs of backbone and resisting Henry and he could not be relied on to rule favourably on the divorce if Henry did go ahead with the break with Rome. But now that Warham was dead, they were on their way to having Thomas Cranmer as Archbishop. Now Cranmer was a client of the Boleyns and was well in favour of royal authority. So Henry was really confident that if he made the break with Rome... Cranmer would do the necessary. And biographer Eric Ives has another theory. This is that Henry's desperate desire to have the Pope's approval continued even at this stage. Even though I think everyone would say that Henry had now firmly moved to believe that he was rightfully the head of the church in England, he'd absolutely convinced himself of that, and that the bishops of Rome had usurped their authority for centuries. But nonetheless, he wanted the Pope to pat him on the head and say, it was all right. And that Anne therefore finally pushed matters. She said she's got to make this chap make his decision. And she set her cap at him one Sunday night after supper and pushed Henry over the line, sure that if she therefore became pregnant, he would have to act at last. If this is true, well, it worked. And on January the 25th, 1533, the couple were married in a small ceremony with no but the required witnesses to satisfy the requirement of public honesty. Now, the priest marrying them proved a little bit sassier than Henry would have liked. He asked for evidence from the Pope that it was OK for him to get married, given, you know, he's already got a wife. The king fibbed, said, oh, we had it, but, oops, oh, oh dear, I, I left it in my bedroom. The priest suggested he really needed to go and get it, at which point the king decided against the the dog ate my homework excuse, which never worked for me either, and instead said dangerously between gritted teeth that it would be fine, just get on with it. At which point the priest suddenly found himself in possession of a sense of self-preservation and went ahead. Henry and Cromwell, meanwhile, drove the official separation forward from Rome. Once Cranmer was officially consecrated Archbishop of Canterbury, in April, Parliament presented convocation of the Church with a new bill, a bill called the Restraint of Appeals, which, after some debate, was approved. Now, the new Act was, again, not a terminal separation quite yet. The Church's authority was left intact. But appeals couldn't be made from Canterbury to Rome. Canterbury was now the end of the line. And here are the historic words that underpinned the entire English Reformation in the preamble to this act. Whereas by diverse sundry old authentic histories and chronicles, it is manifestly declared and expressed that this realm of England is an empire, and so hath been accepted in the world, governed by one supreme head and king. The act cleared the way for the later declaration of royal supremacy, That first phrase, whereas by divers, sundry, old, authentic histories and chronicles, is interesting. This refers, of course, to the collectanea, the thing put together by Cranmer. But in fact, it is, of course, tripe. 
the sundry old authentic histories do nothing of the sort. But Cromwell was a practical man, and he knew that the time had come to close his eyes, hold his nose and jump. And with his leg now firmly over, Henry had to do the same thing, even though this basically destroyed any point of that agreement he'd made with Francis I at the end of last year about getting Francis to curry favour with the Pope. Francis himself would later rather despairingly accuse Henry of complete diplomatic incompetence. As fast as Francis tried to bring Henry and Clement together, Henry did his best to drive them apart. And actually, he was absolutely right. At the same time, it made the Archbishop of Canterbury effectively the Pope in Rome. Later in the year, in July, the Act in Conditional Restraints of Annates, passed previously, was implemented, and the flow of taxes to Rome reduced to a trickle. Clement finally responded by giving Henry six months to put away Anne, return to Catherine on pain of excommunication. In May 1533, Cranmer convened a court at Dudloy and triumphantly ruled that Henry and Catherine's marriage had been quite illegal. Catherine refused to attend, understandably, and as soon as they heard the news, Henry's workmen started stripping everything they could find of the previous H and K monogram. They stripped walls, barges, cushions, underpants, replaced them all with H and A. In June 1533, Anne was crowned. The coronation itself was an affair of pomp and ceremony, such as the Brits are sadly famous. And the Tudors could make anybody's ceremonies look half-baked. In this, the Thames played a central part as the living, breathing centre of London life in a way that it cannot really be any longer. On the 29th of May, Anne came from Greenwich Palace to the Tower of London and the Thames was covered with barges and smaller craft. The Queen's flotilla itself had over 300 craft, barges gilded and decorated in bright colours with trumpets and music playing. The guilds were out in force and the whole process took two hours to get from Greenwich. On the 31st of May, there was a procession from the Tower of London to Westminster Hall. The streets were stuffed with spectators, both the good old general public drawn by the spectacle of it all and the more organised ranks of guildsmen and apprentices doing exactly what they were told. On the 1st of June, it was then the coronation itself, with Anne visibly pregnant and dressed in a French style, smothered with jewels. The great and the good were all in attendance, and so all were, in Thomas More's words, deflowered, forced into willing or unwilling acquiescence. Then afterwards it was back to the banquet, and on the 2nd of June a day of jousts, all the fun of the fair, and given the planning window, something of a tour de force of organisation. Now then, mud has been thrown at these celebrations, mud most horrid. Chapuis, in his bitter disappointment at his beloved Catherine's defeat, described the event as a cold affair, relating how there were no cheers, just sullen dislike of the Queen and her pretensions. The Spanish Chronicle related how Anne herself complained to the mayor, Sir, I like the city well enough, but I saw a great many caps on heads and heard but few tongues. At which point the mayor is supposed to have retorted that he couldn't command citizens' hearts. Another had Anne's fools shouting at people. They wouldn't take their caps off because their heads were all scurvied. And there were indeed a few notable absences, though not many. 
One of them was Norfolk's wife, who had been sent away for her vocal opposition to Anne. Another was the king's sister, who simply wouldn't have it. And a third, of course, famously, was Thomas More, the ex-chancellor, even though his friends had desperately tried to persuade him and they'd given him £20 to buy himself a robe for the event. More kept the 20 quid, but wouldn't come to the event. But all these reports are a bit questionable because most of them come from biased sources. A report from the Venetian ambassador has everything as absolutely tickety-boo, though he didn't specifically say the populace loved it. It's very unlikely that there wouldn't have been suitable cheers and cap-throwing from the disciplined ranks of the guilds, otherwise it would have been thick ears from the master all round. But it's a bit unknowable. What can be said, though, is this. It was an affair of absolutely suitable magnificence. The official inauguration of Queen Anne was achieved, and achieved in no uncertain terms, and the great and the good were forced to take part. But it's also equally clear that the start of Anne's reign was opposed by many. From some of the notables at court, the radical nature of this revolution was just way too far. There's a fascinating report actually from Chapuis, so careful, might be moonshine, of an exchange between Anne and her dad, Wiltshire, as late as May 1533. So Wiltshire told his daughter she shouldn't hide her pregnancy because it was all so wonderful and all that sort of thing. Anne snapped back that she was in a better state than he had wished her to be. It suggests that even her father had found the break with tradition more than he could stomach. But although the Spanish reports must reflect some wishful thinking, it is beyond doubt that there was a lot of love and support for Catherine and that there was a lot of private unease amongst the notables about what was going on and that there was a widespread public hatred of Anne. In April... An Oxford midwife was imprisoned for calling Anne a goggle-eyed whore. A priest was jailed for declaring, The king's wife in fornication, this matron Anne, be more stinking than a sow. A midwife accused Anne of being a whore and a harlot. I could go on. The abbot of Whitby declared that The king's grace was ruled by one common stewed whore, Anne Bullen, who made all spirituality to be beggared, and temporality too. The whole thing is critical, I think, for understanding Anne. For years now, she's been under constant pressure and constant disapproval, and now it's not going away. Being crowned queen and being married must have made an enormous difference, of course. But though Anne was pregnant, there was, as yet, no son. A son is, of course, a joy forever, but in Anne's case, it was also a get-out-of-jail-free card. From June to December, Anne must have been as secure and happy, though, as at any other time of her life since 1527. She was now queen. The legalities had been done. Her relationship with Henry seemed as strong as ever. She was pregnant, and she was convinced that it was a son. The great and powerful now came to do her court, and if they didn't, her boyfriend gave them a thick ear. And what of Catherine? Well, in July 1533, a proclamation was made that stripped her of the title of Queen and said that she would, from here on in, be called Princess Dowager of Wales, a title that was hers by right because it predated anything to do with Henry when she was married to Arthur. Poor old Mountjoy, remember him, her Chamberlain, drew the short straw and he was required to deliver the evil tidings to Catherine. Now Catherine made the most of the occasion, she got all her servants together, and then she called him in. 
she lay strategically placed on a daybed, playing up the sympathy by saying that she'd hurt her foot with a pin. A new angle on the princess and the pea story, possibly. And she had a nasty cough. Anne gulped and read his instructions, and Catherine let it rip. She rejected the title. She was the king's wife. She was queen. She was mother of his legitimate children. She didn't recognise Cranmer's court. If anyone called her Princess Dowager of Wales, she'd pretend she hadn't heard. Then she took Mountjoy's instructions and scrubbed out every instance of the title. No surrender. Till the day I die. Till the day I die. Mountjoy legged it. But all Catherine's resistance was to no avail. Catherine's household would be reduced. She would be banished to a house Chapuis described as though it was barely fit for human habitation. In fact, it was perfectly suitable and large, and Catherine's household cost 3,000 quid a year. No mean figure. Hidden away in her fastness, Catherine lived out a life of denial, resolutely having her servants' liveries embroidered with the H and K monogram, hiding royal plate and valuables when Henry asked for it to be returned. By September 1533, though, the royal birth was imminent. There were pressures. Everyone was nervous. No one could relax. Henry rather thoughtfully organised a hunting trip to take the pressure of Anne. Sweet. Chapuis tells us, though, that Henry and Anne quarrelled because Henry took a mistress, which is what he tended to do during his wife's pregnancies. Anne shouted at him. Henry told her that this was the way it was and she should suck it up, and they sulked for days. Ives discredits the story and demonstrates for sure that it's hearsay, and anyway, even if it did happen, even Chapuis described it as nothing but a lover's tiff. On September the 7th, 1533, after a much shorter than normal confinement, Queen Anne was delivered of a beautiful, healthy, bouncing baby. It was, of course, a girl, called Elizabeth, who would one day be a contender for the greatest ever Monarch of England award. Now, the pro-Catherine faction, past and present, would big up the disappointment showed by the King and the Queen. And the pro-Belinna, past and present, would have us believe that might have been a mild twinge, but it was nothing really. I cannot believe Henry was anything other than gutted, however proud he might have been with his new daughter. And in her heart, I cannot believe that a small, frightened part of Anne wished it had been otherwise also. There is little doubt, both Henry and Anne loved and were proud of their daughter. But it left Henry without his male heir, and for Anne it meant that Mary's claim remained alive in a way it would not have done if she had produced a male heir. He deprived Anne of the sign of divine approval that would have made her position unassailable. It meant that the Emperor Charles V remained implacably opposed. Just maybe with a male heir, he would have decided the fight no longer worth a candle. And it meant that the politics of court remained unstable. The factions of court still had everything to play for. Nonetheless, best foot forward, the christening was another opportunity to thrust the nation's nose firmly into the droppings and reinforce the point that Anne was here to stay. Anne and Henry had a look round and identified some of Catherine's closest adherents and took the opportunity for a bit of good, honest, no-poo point scoring. So Exeter had to carry the taper. That's not a Malayan pig, though. That would have been funnier, but a lighted candle sort of thing. Suffolk escorted the kiddiewink. The Marchioness of Exeter was made a godmother. Three words. Suck it up. Not so Catherine. No sucking up going on there. Henry had demanded the christening robe that she had used for Mary. 
Some authors simply substitute the name Anne for Henry's name in this demand, but we really don't know if it was Anne's idea. The thing about Anne is again that she's become the sort of evil counsellor. Blame all the bad stuff on her rather than the king. But whoever's evil genius it was, Catherine sent them packing. The robe had been hers. She had brought it with her from Spain, on your bike, pal. No way, Jose. Let us turn at this point to the Princess Mary, the other player in this story of pain. I said a while ago that here was somebody who surely had a hard life. And despite the splendour and physical comfort of her life, it's surely impossible not to feel for the poor woman. Despite the centuries that have passed since her agony ended, presumably in meeting her Catholic maker, Mary identified deeply with her mother's pain, but I suspect that despite it all, she retained a love and desire for acceptance from her father that all the events just made ever more painful. Anyway, she was on the other hand as unyielding as were both her mother and her father. Seriously, the word emollient was entirely absent from the Tudor lexicon. I, personally, spend most of my life emolling, but not so those Tudor dudes. Mary was offered a substantial household, but she refused her new title of Lady Mary, which was the price. She was a princess, and as far as she was concerned, the only legitimate princess. There was a small child called Elizabeth around, but she was just the bastard of her king's concubine. Seriously, even Chapuis shuddered at the virulence of her resistance and told her to tone it down just a bit for her own sake. Now, we have to remember that Tudor fatherhood was different to modern parenthood, in the West at least. Nowadays, I recognise that the great chain of being is an alien concept and that my only role in life is to make my contribution to the gene pool and to be gone. I am admitted of a short stay of execution purely because I may be allotted the task of supporting my small contributions to said gene pool through their period in the chrysalis of childhood though this comes at a price and a series of humiliations, such as, for example, needing to refer to Wiggly Woo as though he were, in fact, a real walking-talking living worm, and listen to Kasha, and something to do with a beat down low on the car stereo. Not for my offspring, long journeys being forced to listen to the more obscure output of CPE Bach. The point of my rant is that in what follows, Anne often gets the blame, rather than Henry. It is she who is represented as unnecessarily vindictive and vicious. It's claimed that Henry was pushed into browbeating his daughter. In what follows, in Henry's brutal insistence on his daughter's submission, there's little doubt that Anne concurred. But you don't need to use the word vindictive or vengeance to support it or suppose that it was Anne that caused it to happen. Mary had to be made to be obedient for two principal reasons. One, because in Tudor times, daughters and sons must be obedient to their parents, particularly to their father. Secondly, because Mary was the obvious centre of political resistance to Henry and Anne, and so she had to be made to comply. For both Henry and Anne's sake, she had to be made to comply. As Anne said, she is my death and I am hers. If Mary succeeded, it would be at the expense of Anne and her offspring. Mary's resistance was, like her mother's, both courageous and pointless. But she became the focus of all opposition to Anne, and again, like the evil counsellor thing, it was Anne who got the blame for Mary's treatment. Fair enough, in fact, Anne was far from perfect, 
Her behaviour towards Mary varied between virulent and vindictive fury to a slightly desperate and hopeless attempt to reconcile the irreconcilable. Obviously, a lot of what we think we know comes from Chapuis, but his letters are so full of examples, it's difficult to completely disbelieve him and think he made it all up. It all rather has the ring of truth. For example, swearing once that when Henry was on a visit to Francis I, she'd use her powers to seize and kill Mary. Now let's qualify this. Chapuis would have us believe that Anne was speaking literally. I've little doubt Anne was just venting. And so in 1533, when Mary was offered her household and title of Lady Mary, she treated it with the contempt she felt for the whole affair. And then, in an act of inventive cruelty, her father forced her to become part of the little Elizabeth's household. She was isolated from her former servants and friends. Once, when the household was moved, she refused to move on some point of precedence and was carried bodily into a carriage. That was the ultimate humiliation for a princess like Mary. But in 1534, Anne held out an olive branch to her, offering to welcome Mary to court if she would accept her as queen. Mary's response was that she knew of no other queen than her mother. On another particularly awkward occasion, Anne and Mary happened to be in the palace chapel at the same time and a servant whispered to Anne that Mary had acknowledged her in the chapel. And Anne, with a rush of excitement and relief, sent a messenger to Mary, saying that she desires this may be an entrance of friendly correspondence, which your grace shall find completely to be embraced on her part. Poor Anne. Either she had been set up, or the servant was mistaken. Mary sent a snooty message back. She said, hmm, the messenger must be mistaken in saying they had a message from the Queen because the Queen couldn't have sent the message since she was so far away from this place. Oh, very funny. And anyway, her curtsy had been to the altar. She knew of no Queen but her mother. If this is true, and it is arguable, can you imagine Anne's humiliation and fury? But once more, Anne tried again. She had a letter left artfully where Mary might find it, an offer to help Mary's conditions improve if she would only accept her as queen. And Anne wrote, I have daily experienced that the king's wisdom is such as not to esteem her repentance of rudeness and unnatural obstinacy when she had no choice. Mary made a copy of the letter for Chapuis and then ignored it. Now Mary was of course a 17-year-old girl at this point and all this must have been very hard. If we believe Chapuis, Mary was frequently in her room shedding bitter tears, and it all seems very believable. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So back to politics then. In 1534, in the fifth session of the Reformation Parliament up to the end of March, Henry and Cromwell just marched right on. Peter's Pence, a payment that had been made to Rome since Alfred the Great's time, was abolished. The supplication of the ordinaries we heard about a couple of episodes ago, the submission of the clergy, was put into statutory form. And then in March in Rome, Clement 
finally recognised there was just no point in trying to reconcile Henry and he finally ruled in favour of Catherine's appeal. And the response in England in November 1534 was the completion of the long game, the Act of Supremacy. By this, finally, the ancient ties between England and Rome were broken completely. Henry now had control of clerical discipline and the right to correct the opinions of preachers. He could try heresy cases and he had control of all religious teaching. England was now a theocracy. The Bishop of Rome, as far as England was concerned, was just that, a foreign bishop, just like any other. While the strategy remained Henry's, 1534 is a monument to the thoroughness and genius of Thomas Cromwell. Cromwell not only reflected and implemented Henry's demand to be separated from Rome and become head of the English church, he recognises the consequences, the requirements and opportunities inherent in the situation. So as head of the church, all the rights and dues would become due to the crown. And so Cromwell commissioned the Valor Ecclesiasticus, a survey of all the income and assets of the church, a kind of doomsday survey of the church. And he did it for the same reason Billy the Conk did, so he could tax them. Cromwell knew that there would, without doubt, be resistance to all of this. So in 1534, he passed an act which provokes a degree of fury I find a bit odd. So the Treason Act made writing malicious things against the king and queen treason. A chap called Lord Montague at the time said, It was a strange world, as words were made treason. Seriously, it always had been, hadn't it? Certainly, Henry VII's treason charges against Warwick, just for example, were remarkably flimsy, he just wanted to kill the guy. Nonetheless, the 1534 Treason Act was repealed as soon as Henry was dead. However, Cromwell now had the tools and he would need them, and he would use them. And finally was the Act of Succession. This act made Anne's offspring the undisputed heirs. As you'd expect, really, it wouldn't have come as much of a shock. But the kicker was in the preamble, and in the fact that everyone in the country had to swear to uphold this act. So the preamble said that you had to renounce the power of, quote, any foreign authority or potentate. Hmm... Who could that mean now? Uh, oh, possibly perhaps he means the Pope. There's that question we raised a long time ago, back in the mists of time, when we started on our golden new Renaissance Prince Henry, about the strange difference between the young man who came to the throne and ruled for close to two decades in a blaze of fun and medieval pursuits like mm, visiting war on your immediate neighbours, that sort of thing. And how different that is to the mean, nasty, decrepit king of the 1540s. Well, maybe it's around here that something dies in Henry, in the antagonism between him and parts of his country. It has long been noted that the break with Rome was marked by strangely little rumpus, though, on the part of its people. It seems unlikely anymore that this was because everyone was just waiting and desperate for it to happen, that old Protestant story thing. Though without doubt there were many who did, and who were enthusiastic supporters of the break with Rome. But for most others, it was just difficult to know at what point to object. It happened bit by bit. For the most part, it was probably a combination of the traditional trust in the king, and the fact that for the moment little changed in their daily religious observances, because theology at this point was little affected 
that stopped people from getting upset or actually walking out in revolt. Plus, all of this doesn't mean that there was no resistance. Up to 1540, probably around 130 people lost their lives for treason. In July 1533, a particularly high-profile death was that of Elizabeth Barton, the Maid of Kent, as she was called. Originally, she'd had visions, and she'd been very much honoured as part of that late medieval mysticism that revered this kind of experience. But then in 1534, she was manipulated by people around her, and her visions became rather political, such as threatening that the king would be dead within a year if he married Anne, which is, you know, reasonably adversarial. She became a focus for resistance. In 1534, then, the maid and six of her accomplices were duly convicted of treason and went through the full hideousness of execution for treason. You know what I'm talking about. In May 1534, three Carthusian monks were executed at Tyburn. A year later, three more would meet the same fate, after spending 17 days in irons, unable to sit or move. Henry and Cromwell were ruthlessly prepared to use violence to enforce their will. But of course the two most famous executions came close to each other. Bishop John Fisher paid the price first, tried and convicted of treason and executed on the 22nd of June 1535. Fisher tried the Thomas More silent treatment, but fell at the same hurdle, tricked into admitting that he thought the King's supremacy was wrong and impossible for Parliament to dispense, tricked by a clever lawyer called Richard Rich. Fisher was caught bang to rights, actually. He'd also been corresponding with Charles V, urging him to invade and depose Henry, which is reasonably clear treason-wise. Clement had died by this stage, actually, and his replacement as Pope, Paul III, thought he'd save Fisher's life by making him a cardinal, because surely no one would execute a cardinal. Seriously? Really haven't been listening. Henry grumpily remarked that by the time his cardinal's hat arrived, he'd make sure Fisher had no head for it, which is pretty damning of the impartiality of English justice, coming as it did before the trial. Fisher, as you would expect, died with dignity and courage, a pretty straightforward Catholic martyr who stood up to Henry publicly all the way. It's odd then that the second man to be executed, Thomas More, should receive so much more attention. I suppose it's because he was such a talented scholar and he was a lay person as well, and so maybe it was less expected. Maybe also because historically, Protestants even tried to claim him as a sort of proto-Protestant because of his humanist and reforming views, something I imagine would make more chuckle. It's also, of course, Robert Bolt, a man for all seasons in that brilliant film. But these things are all hagiography. They present more as dying for the modern theme of his personal conscience, more died for the much more medieval theme of the unity and indivisibility of Christendom. More, though, seems to me a good deal more compromised than Fisher. He'd worked as Henry's Chancellor, he enjoyed the benefits of power and influence, and this thing about More being betrayed by Henry VIII because Henry promised to keep him out of the divorce, he's really rubbish. More would have known this to be a promise Henry could not keep. He wasn't an idiot. More then wrote furiously against the theological bases on which the break with Rome was based, without which there could be no divorce. And then More provided advice and support to the clerics, resisting Henry. And so More broke the pact every bit as much as Henry did. More took a lawyer's line to avoid execution, which to my mind was essentially dishonest. I don't blame him one little bit for trying to avoid being killed. 
I'd have essentially signed anything put in front of me. But there is an irony that the evidence that did for more was provided by another clever lawyer, Richard Rich again. Although that story that Rich perjured himself is probably rather more complicated than that, actually. The likelihood is that Rich just tricked Moore into discussing hypothetical cases, including, mm, let's talk about the royal supremacy. And the court then chose to ignore the fact that Moore had been discussing legal hypotheses. But whatever the legalities, Moore was without a shadow of a doubt guilty as charged, wasn't he? Anyway, just like Fisher, Moore died with courage and a dash of humour. Both Moore and Fisher were amazingly brave men who stood up to Henry and had the clarity of mind to recognise exactly what he was doing and understand the consequences of what Henry was doing. If you want to know more about both of them, there are shedcasts on both of them and there's even a Thomas More quiz that you can take whether you're a member or whether you're not a member. Into this heated atmosphere came the start of the attack on the monasteries. This is a topic we'll keep for future episodes in detail, but in this early period, only the smaller monasteries were targeted. In the Acts of 1536, agreeing to their dissolution, great play was made of the use of the proceeds for education or poor relief. Little of that actually happened. For Cromwell, this was a vision of a crown completely endowed for all its glory, independent. Monasteries owned about 10% of England's land, with an income of 136,000 quid a year, and this would make a massive difference to the power and independence of the crown. But for others, this was an opportunity for just a bit of innocent personal wealth enhancement. Others, though, were more high-minded. Here was the chance to endow centres of education or provide proper poor relief. And we think one of the people who thought this way may have been Anne. And so to Queen Anne, the title of this podcast episode, after all, Anne of a Thousand Days. What was she like as a queen? What does it tell us when we try and answer our debating question whether Anne was a maker of history, or whether she was just, as Catherine spat from her very soul, the scandal of Christendom? What's utterly clear is that Anne is no shrinking violet, wary of the use and power and patronage. But then I doubt you expected anything else. Anne appeared to relish being at the centre of things, relished exercising the potential for patronage that her position gave her. She played the game. To some folks, this was both welcome and unwelcome. Let us take the good old Duke of Norfolk, her unk. It is possible that Thomas Howard, Duke of Norfolk, was well happy when his niece became queen and he expected to be able to exercise power through a compliant female hurrah. Actually, I doubt even Howard was fool enough to think that, but it started well for him in that Anne managed to land him an absolutely peachy bit of patronage. The wardship of Henry's very own son, the illegitimate Duke of Richmond, daughter of Henry and Bessie Blunt. And Norfolk didn't have to pay a penny to land it. It would normally have cost more than one limb. But that was enough as far as Anne was concerned. She wasn't about to be in Norfolk's pocket. He needed to realise that further honours would have to be earned. And in fact, by 1535, Norfolk was probably in something of a pother. Everything had looked so good when Wolsey had been dispatched. No more mudbloods. True blue bloods back in control as they had been through the centuries, Norfolk and Suffolk. Except they'd turned out to be reasonably chinless. I'm being rather mean about the pair, possibly too mean. But Henry himself growled at them that he wished he had Wolsey back. Anyway, now Anne was proving distressingly independent. 
And Cromwell. Now, Cromwell was being the indispensable king's right-hand man rather than them. Ambassadors, for example, were now frequently sent to Cromwell rather than Suffolk or Norfolk. Chapuis himself told the emperor that Cromwell stood above everyone except the king and the lady, as he called her. By 1535, Norfolk would be feeling seriously left behind by both of them. Norfolk didn't like being left behind. As far as Norfolk was concerned, he was a man supposed to be more leaving than leaving against. To butcher a quote. Sorry, Billy. There are numerous examples of people coming to Anne for her influence and patronage while she was queen, whether for her own sake or as a mediator with the king. It's difficult because now that they're married, Anne could exercise her influence behind the scenes, so it's trickier to see the public evidence of that influence at work. But clearly, others at time acted as though she was worth approaching. One way she operated was through the rising man of the moment, Thomas Cromwell. Now, some commentaries appear to assume that Cromwell was Anne Boleyn's client. It's pretty difficult to demonstrate a relationship of that nature, actually, in the early days, since it assumes Anne propelling Cromwell to power. And in fact, Cromwell comes to the king's notice through his work in conveyancing for the earliest dissolution of the monasteries under Wolsey. It is easier to demonstrate, though, that subsequently Anne and Cromwell probably did work together. Well, in Tudor times, a lad from Putney didn't exactly work together with the Queen, he did her bidding. But the two supported each other and relied on each other, and others coming to court assumed that they were connected. So whether or not Cromwell owed his original success to Anne, he appears to owe at least a part of his continuing rise to Anne's support. What I'm saying is that Anne was conscious of her position, enjoyed her influence, and was not afraid of it, that she was involved to a degree probably beyond normal expectation and tradition. There's a famous incident with her successor as Queen, Jane Seymour, where Jane spoke up for traditionalists in religion and begged the king to stop dissolving the monasteries, and she was sharply slapped down by Henry, who told her to keep her place, and that if she didn't, she might suffer the same fate as those that hadn't in the past, strongly suggesting that person was Anne. For another example, when a chap called William Courtney came to arrange a match between his daughter-in-law and Cromwell's nephew, Courtney asked Cromwell to produce a request from the king himself that this go ahead to protect him from, quote, her grace's displeasure, i.e. the Queen. William Courtney appeared to think that the Queen's influence was critical, that she could do you good, or indeed she could do you harm, and therefore she needed to be placated. Anne knew this, valued and protected her position. So there's then the rather deliciously nasty incident with her older sister, Mary. Now, we've not heard from Mary for a while. Her husband, William Carey, had died, and then in 1534, Mary made another faux pas and secretly married a rather lowly bloke on the fringes of court and got herself pregnant. Now, Anne, I suppose, could have selected the milk of human kindness button from the courtly vending machine, but such was not her style. In fact, she was livid. As far as Anne was concerned, Mary had damaged her position and reputation, Anne's position and reputation. Chain of being or no chain of being, if Anne hadn't seen herself as head of the Boleyn family before now, she did now. So Mary Boleyn, despite her protestations and pleadings, was sent down from court, banished. Despite a pitiful letter to Cromwell begging him to intercede with her sister, she was never received at court again, and her allowance 
was cut off. The letter survives, by the way, and it's worth a read. Hop along to the Anne Boleyn files, search for Mary Carey, and have a read. OK, so we can see Anne as an active queen in the traditional sphere of exercising patronage, a queen as traditional as Catherine would have done that much. But there is a suspicion that Anne went further, that she was an active participant in politics too, sharing her views with the king in a rather untraditional way, an active part of court politics, exercising influence with operators such as Cromwell, Norfolk, her father Wiltshire. And we can see her steel. She wasn't afraid to squash those who stood in her way or had not won her favour or threatened her position, even to the point of that being her sister. If her political involvement is indeed the case and the evidence is a bit partial, this is unexceptional for any of the political players, of course, at court across the ages. It's just that these players are not normally women or queens. A queen would indeed be a source of patronage, might intercede with the king, but within closely defined and non-political lines. Whether exercised in a political sphere or not, one of the tragedies of Anne's life is that this wit, this intelligence, savoir-faire, this talent for power is probably what fascinated and attracted Henry to her originally and kept him in thrall for all those years. Now, she was queen, it is at least entirely possible that it had absolutely the opposite effect. And of course, if you live by the sword, there's a chance you might die by it. But Anne's reputation is more than simply as an unusually active and political woman. One of the things both Catholics and Protestants managed to agree on is that Anne was an evangelical who pulled Henry away from the traditional faith of his forefathers. The Catholics say this while spitting and waving their fists, the Prots saying it while giving a dance of joy, a few fist pumps and the odd leap into the air while doing that fiddly sort of thing with feet and ankles that ballet and river dancers do. John Fox, not a shy and retiring man, wrote... What a zealous defender she was of Christ's gospels all the world doth know, and her acts do and will declare her to the world. But whatever the reaction, Catholics and Prots, as I say, agree on that general story. She was an evangelical. Is this true? Well, I'm glad you asked that. As with many things with Anne, it's a little difficult. You have to make some assumptions. But then where would the fun be in all of this if it was all clear, fine and dandy? there are a few bits of evidence people point to to say that Anne was indeed an evangelical, and here are some of them. First of all, there is the contention by some that Anne it was that pushed Henry into the break with Rome, that desperately attached to the traditional relationship with Rome, Henry kept planning and hoping right up to the last moment that Clement would release him from the hook, and even planned for an illegitimate child by Anne. But Anne it was that shoved the rod of steel up his backbone and gave him the courage to see it through. Which would be a good reason for Catholics to think, well, less well of her. But even if you do believe it, and many would argue passionately that Henry was the instigator of all the strategy and Cromwell his enforcer, that he had no need of Anne in this, even if you believe Anne did push a reluctant Henry forward, it's not sufficient to demonstrate the evangelical zeal that Fox is claiming her. She might well have done all of that purely as a search for power to become queen, so there has to be more. Well, one is her family, specifically her brother George Boleyn Rochford. He was very open about his desire for reform and for an active, participative religion. I had rather a good liver according to the gospel, he declared, than ten babblers. I certainly agree with him about the value of a good liver, critical for a lover of ale. So Anne appears to come from and tolerate at very least a family that talks of reform. 
and we have seen her squash family who do things she doesn't agree with. Then, there are the people that she promotes. She's lucky enough to have four bishops who croak during her time, and she is credited with advancing the causes of Thomas Cranmer, as we've seen, the great evangelical preacher and Oxford martyr Hugh Latimer, and of Nicholas Shaxton and Thomas Goodrich, who all become bishops and all have a reputation as evangelicals. Her very own chaplains, William Latimer, John Skip, Matthew Parker, all were reputed to be reformers, though we'll hear more of John Skip in the next episode, and there are some doubts about that with him. OK, then there is what she chose to read. Famously, as we have discussed before, she is credited with pushing Simon Fish and William Tyndale's writings into Henry's sweaty paws, though, if you were critical, you could point there to an ulterior motive. These were writers advocating the supremacy of the prince over the church. But she's also reputed to have protected the illegal trade in English language Bibles, to have read or at least been presented with and accepted books with reformist tendencies. Although I have to say, one of the incidents in her courtship with Henry involves the scrawling of love messages in religious books. I know what would have happened to me if I'd scrawled love notes in books in church and it wouldn't have involved happily ever after or a reputation for evangelicalism, I can tell you. But her reading probably does speak of a strong personal thinking piety, probably quite different from the seemingly rather mechanical piety of her husband. However, it is also probably more accurate to describe this as Christian humanism, rather than the Lutheranism of which Chapuis accused her. Anne, for example, never speaks out for the more radical changes that Luther eventually began to move towards, such as those on the sacrament, for example. And all this evidence is rather two times removed, as it were. It's rather vague and slim, and it can be overstated. She might have been reading these for very different reasons, simply to understand, rather than because she believed them. And for example, she also quite clearly refused to accept some books which were theologically radical. It's not clear that the appointments of the four bishops even can really be unequivocally laid at her door rather than Henry's. All that we really know is that Anne appears to have a good library of religious texts and is personally pious. The rest is really a question of interpretation. One of the things I suspect I have not communicated very well so far it's a thing that gets regularly stressed about Anne, her love of display, of clothes, of fashion, of art. That like many of the rich and famous in the early modern world, she was a lover of sumptuous magnificence and a patron of the arts. Ah, say so her detractors, so much for the pious thing then. Didn't Jesus talk about poverty and all that sort of thing? I paraphrase 2,000 years of Christian teaching, of course. As we have consistently seen, though, the love of magnificence and display was a requirement of her position not necessarily a sign of vainglory. I mean, she might have been vainglorious, who knows? But the way she dressed at court and in public is not evidence of that specifically. It was her job as a courtier and as a queen. All kings and queens for centuries had recognised that. The vast majority of folks also in the 16th century saw no contradiction between religious commitment and human riches. Here is a quote attributed to Anne herself. The royal estate of princes... For the excellency thereof doth far pass and excel all other estates and degrees of life, which doth represent and outwardly shadow unto us the glorious and celestial monarchy which God doth exercise in the firmament. It's a nice argument. Not sure I'm convinced, but hey, context is everything. Outside of the mass of bills and expenses on Anne's clothes, 
there's surprisingly little detail about her life at court that survives. We do know, of course, that for a significant part of the year, court meant travelling, when the royal entourage took off round the country, moving from palace to palace or noble house to noble house. They'd arrive, eat them out of house and home, and then move off in a chaos of carts and horses and kit. In a year, there might be as many 30 locations. Without wanting to be consciously puerile, Pooh played its part as well. After a while, the sanitary arrangements just couldn't cope with all these extra people, and so they had to go, leaving their hosts to clean up the mess, as it were. Anyway, later this week you will know much more about the royal progress, because we have a special guest episode from Natalie Gruninger. Outside of the travelling year, there were then a core of royal palaces within London, and by 1535 Henry was just hitting his stride in his building spree. As we've seen, he'd acquired York Place from the corpulent cardinal, and Anne got involved on a personal and detailed basis in its still further expansion. Then up the Thames was the glorious Hampton Court, another Wolsey hand-me-down. Interestingly, in Hampton Court, we know that there was a break in tradition in that Anne's suites of rooms were right by Henry's, with connecting corridors between them, very unlike the previous situation with Catherine, who'd been across the way. But of detailed daily life, we know rather little. We know that Anne was particularly noted for her musical skills. There are many references to her skills as a musical performer. We know that Anne and her ladies would have spent hour after hour in embroidery, sewing and creating the most amazing tapestries. On a more domestic note, there's a famous occasion where Anne learns that Catherine is still mending Henry's shirts. She goes ballistic and you can understand why she might. But of the fun, laughter, dancing and most of all courtly banter, we catch nubber to glimpse, some glimpses of which we will talk about next week. There is one famous quote from her Chamberlain about one occasion, which goes like this. As for pastime in the Queen's chamber, there was never more. If any of you that be now departed have any ladies ye thought favoured you and somewhat would mourn at parting of their servants, I can no whit perceive the same by their dancing and pastime they do use here, but that other take place as has ever been the custom. It's a quote that gives a suggestion that may have been more dancing, fun and laughter than might have been quite approved of. But it's difficult to hang a reputation on one quote. Against this, Anne appears to have been strict in regulating the behaviour of those who attended her court, as indeed she was expected to do as a great lady. Oakley Doakley the reign of Queen Anne then. Next week we'll get back to the narrative and the years 1535 to 1536, which will be most significant years in the lifetimes and indeed death of the Queen Consort Anne. Meanwhile, two other things. I'm delighted that Natalie Gruniger will be speaking of the Royal Summer Progress. Hop along to her website also at onthetudortrail.com. Secondly, I have put a quiz up on the website thehistoryofengland.co.uk about Anne's life before she was queen. Go and test your knowledge if you dare. Thank you kindly then everyone for listening, for all your comments on iTunes, Facebook, the website and so on. Enjoy Natalie's podcast. Good luck and have a great week. Mom. 
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.